Hi, I'm Jim. I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And today we're happy to have on Dr. Iris Clever. Iris is a postdoctoral researcher and instructor at the Stevanovich Institute on the Formation of Knowledge and is affiliated with the Department of History at the University of Chicago. She finished her PhD at UCLA. So Iris works on the history of science, medicine, and technology, the history of the body, what modern Europe, Netherlands history, race and gender. And you actually teach a class on race and medicine right now. That's right, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's terrific. I'm so thrilled. So today we wanted to talk about a recent paper that I think you're in the middle of writing right now on Carl Pearson, one of the eugenicists who's in the the lineage of Francis Galton, and then another anthropologist, GM Morant. Tell us about this work. How did you come to it? Can you actually start off just by telling us, okay, who is this Carl Pearson guy? We've said his name a few times. We've never really tackled who he was, why he was important. And then, and also like what time period are we talking about here? This brings us to the late 19th century and early 20th century. And how I came to study how Pearson started measuring rather a lot of skulls is through uh, my master's project. The first interaction I had with physical anthropology was the studying the Dutch scientific expedition to New Guinea in 1902. And I was particularly interested here in looking at the research practices of a particular physical anthropology, Gijsberg van der Sande. And I was curious, how did he measure people? How did he collect bones and skulls and other anthropological items? And what did he do with these measurements to support his theory of so-called Papuan races? And I realized while I was doing this research that there's something really particular going on in the anthropological handling of the data. So this guy shows up, measures a whole bunch of people, measures a bunch of skulls, and then these measurements, they break up the body in all these different bits and pieces and then stitch them back together in racial categories that in a very confusing way equate geographic regions, nations, and tribes. And these categories all are connected then through averages and meshed together to say something important about race. So I wanted to learn more about how these data practices connected these colonial encounters to these published theories of race. So this is something I set out to do with my PhD. So by the time I arrived at grad school, these data practices were on my radar. And I decided that the first thing I needed to do was to learn how to think like an early 20th century physical anthropologist. So I picked up American anthropologist Alesh Herdlishka's textbook. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. He publishes this in 1920. And I figured I need, just need to figure out what students are learning at the time. And one of the things I noticed immediately is that Herdlishka is complaining about the lack of standardization of measurement practices, that this has been attempted at several moments and it has failed over and over again. So this was one of the first topics I wanted to dive into. If we're looking at these data practices and what they're doing with these colonial encounters and producing racial theories, what is happening with standardization? It seems rather important to the whole endeavor. And this is where Carl Pearson's lab came into view, because one of the main organizing people of the interwar effort to standardize racial measurements is biometrician Miriam Tildesley. And she is someone who passed through Pearson's biometric lab at University College London. And in her publication, she talks about something called Pearsonian anthropology. And this was 
really rather confusing to me because Pearson was one of the founding fathers of mathematical statistics. So how on earth is this guy getting involved in physical anthropology? Yeah. So that was something I decided to dig into. And I, and I figured that, you know, by looking at someone who is approaching the sub subject from statistics, this will be a good angle to learn more about these data practices in physical anthropology. And what I learned is that Pearsonian anthropology was part of this larger turn to quantification in the study of race. I was taught Pearson as one of the founding figures in physical anthropology in my history of anthropology courses in undergrad. Really? Because we usually talk about him. Uh, you know, he founds the journal Biometrica. Yeah. And he's usually thought of as a biostatistician. He works on problems in evolutionary theory at the beginning of the 20th century. But at least I've never heard of him called an anthropologist before. I feel like, you know, like a true historian, Iris, and this is something Eric does also. Uh-oh. It's the individuals in the story who are very important, but but a lot of folks, including myself, are not necessarily all that familiar with those individuals, I would say. Even Pearson, who we have touched on briefly in the podcast before. Okay, so why don't we start back with him a little bit, Iris? Could you give us mm -hmm. more information about Carl Pearson, what exactly he was doing that put him in the realm of both anthropologist and statistician. I think he was doing skull measurement stuff, just like Samuel George Morton had done. Is that right? Absolutely. So Pearson becomes involved as a statistics professor at University College in London. And in the early 20th century, he sets up two laboratories. One is passed down to him from uh, Galton, which is the Galton Eugenics Laboratory, and the other one is the Biometric Laboratory. And they're, they're in the same building, and there's a lot of overlap between what they do, but in a different way, the research that be, is being done in the Biometric Lab is rather distinct. And this is where we find the racial research that is taking place. From 1902, anthropology and racial research becomes a central research topic at the Biometric Lab at UCL. The biometricians aim to make racial research more rigorous with statistical methods. In Pearson's version of racial research, he advocates the use of much larger samples, and he argues that types should be based on the normal distribution curve, not just a single measurement or an average measurement, but the whole variation that one can find within a racial population. What is crucial is that for biometricians, race was not an abstracted ideal type, but a statistical measurement. Pearson then develops a massive cranial collection in his biometric lab that at the time of his death in 1936 includes as many as 7,000 crania. At the time of his death in 1936, Jeffrey Morant, who was his student and becomes the lab's main racial researcher and expert on craniometry, he writes that this is at that time, one of the most important and biggest collections of the world. Do we know where he acquired all those skulls? Yes. And this okay. is... Uh, this is quite the story as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> it always is. It always is. But it, it is one of the first things that I thought was relevant to figure out. So where is Pearson, this really busy statistician, getting his skulls from? Yeah. He begins by questing skulls from explorers, military officers, and archaeologists. Okay. And his interactions with archaeologist Flinders Petrie, who is also at UCL, oh, yeah. were most lucrative. Pearson's skull collection also grew with the development of London. They consider this data, these measurements objective, and they can take them and then run their statistics over it and produce higher insights into racial classification. And there's this long-term reliance on the idea that these measurements are neutral and objective and hmm. 
should be published with preliminary conclusions because someone might pick up these measurements at a later date with more advanced technology and insights and produce better insights about the racial relations. In my mind, this whole global racial classification project centers on data that is published for future use as well. It's some sort of futuristic anthropology that's built into the project and that people like Pearson and, and others um, make use of. And yet their, their methods don't, they, they still are looking at cranial capacities, right? Like that yes. this somehow will tell you how big the brain is, even though we already know by the 20th century that that's just not true. Yes, this is a great question. Why on earth do these methods persist? And the answer is because they are so ubiquitous. So mm. anthropology is the science of man, and it's this ongoing global project of measuring and categorizing races across the globe, which fundamentally relies on comparative data. So you have to keep doing what you've always been doing huh. um, so that you can compare your measurements to older ones. So you simply can't go about reinventing new measurement categories. The biometricians actually comment on this. On the one hand, they want to reinvigorate anthropology with new statistical methods, but they decide to do exactly the same thing in terms of measuring rather than introducing new measurements. This is also something that we see in India. You know, um, among the people who passed through Pearson's lab, as Iris reminded me when we were discussing this just before we recorded, was P.C. Mahalanobis, who, whose name you've probably, if you've listened to the podcast, you've probably heard it before. Our guest a year or two ago, Projit Mukherjee, talked about Mahalanobis because he was the founder of the Indian Statistical Institute, and he was also on the planning commission for the first free government of India. So just as India was transitioning out of colonial rule... He was a very important person in sort of figuring out what India as a nation was going to do with statistics, and in particular, what they were going to do with racial groups that had been identified during colonialism by people we've also talked about in the past on this podcast, like Herbert Hope Risley and others. And so mm. Mahalanobis was trained by Pearson. And it's just really fascinating to me how, how race and anthropology and statistics are all bungled up all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> not, not just in the UK and the United States, but in, as far as India as well, and I'm sure many other places too. Hmm. So one of the other students who passes through the biometric laboratory is Chinese anthropologist Wu Ding Liang, who publishes a, a lot of articles, including with Morant um, in Biometrica on cranial research. Wow. Okay. So all over the world, literally. So Iris, we know that there, it seems like there's a lot of continuities that go from backward in time to Pearson's lab and forward in time from Pearson's lab. But you've also written about GM Morant, and he is a slight departure, I think, from some of the things that were coming out of Pearson's biometrics lab. But it also had an impact on physical anthropology. Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. So Jeffrey Morant is, is really rather significant to the history of physical anthropology because he's one of the very few anthropologists that publicly speaks out in the 1930s against Nazi racism. But in doing so, he continues to promote the idea that race is biologically real. So he presents us with this rather interesting conundrum. How can you oppose racism, but hold on to race? Uh, and Yeah, how can you? Yeah, this particular coupling of race and anti-racism sheds new light on the historical development of race in the 20th century. The literature has for a long time been dominated by this narrative of the supposed rise and fall of race in science and medicine, 
where it says in a somewhat triumphalist manner that in the second half of the 20th century, after World War II, the so-called good cultural anthropology prevails over the so-called bad physical anthropology and moves the field from biological determinism to cultural relativism. Mm -hmm. And recently, historians have started to criticize this teleological model and doing so by analyzing how race and anti-racism can coexist in the work of someone like Morant. And it really shows us the importance of having to historicize these concepts because they mean such different things in different times. We see more and more research coming out that there is a, a lingering preoccupation with typological and biologically deterministic versions of race hmm. in post-World War II, second half of the 20th century physical anthropological research. We also see this with Jeffrey Morenz, who has largely been ignored in the history of physical anthropology, possibly because there was no known archive of his professional papers. And in 2018, I was very lucky to discover them, that a collection of his papers, correspondence, and offprints have been sitting in boxes in the attic of his son's house in England. So what did yes. you find in the attic? A lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> all of his correspondence with Pearson over the years. That really kind of captures the, the friendly relationship that they had. His son said to me that Morant was Pearson's blue-eyed boy and really was taking Pearson's methods and applying that to racial research. Morant becomes the main racial researcher of the biometric lab. Mm -hmm. There's one thing where they are different in opinion. Pearson is eugenically oriented. And yeah. while none of the work, as far as I can tell from the biometric lab on race, really makes it out into eugenics land, if you will, he does speak up in, in public lecture saying that anthropology is the so-called handmaiden of statecraft because it can help determine intelligence and improve society. And I've found nothing of the sorts with Morant. He writes a couple of times to Ashley Montague, with whom he has a massive correspondence, and that Morant only pursues anthropology for its own sake as academic study and not serving a practical use of improving society. So Morant thinks that you can just research, you can't actually apply anthropological knowledge to the running of the state, unlike Pearson. Is that, is that a fair claim? Yes, and it's largely also because he is mostly interested in researching prehistoric and ancient races, their relationships and their migration patterns. So he's not at all interested in measuring living bodies. He's just interested in skulls and hypothesizing about British races or races in other places. For Pearson, race is a statistical measurement, and that is something that Morand really takes over. So this focus on normal variation takes center stage here and leads to all sorts of new understandings of race. So they take the bell-shaped curve uh -huh. as the central aspect that characterizes a race. So if you just look at the average, you're missing a very large part of the curve. And they try mm -hmm. to incorporate information from the rest of the curve through standard deviations and probable errors and publish that in the Biometrica. And this focus on the bell curve leads to several new understandings of race. So first of all, if curves determine the racial characteristics of a population, then that means that a single individual will fall somewhere along this entire distribution curve. So mm. therefore, it becomes impossible to determine the racial origins of an individual, which is something that the Nazi scholars are doing and saying at the mm. time. 
So for Morant, race is always about groups and never about, about individuals. Okay. Hmm. And another thing that he says is that if you look at curves and you take the data at face value, you'll see that these distribution curves will overlap between races. They grade into each other. Therefore, racial boundaries are arbitrary. So he's basically saying that racial classification does not exist, but he doesn't quite go that far. He, he says it's, it's a convenient taxonomic exercise. And then thirdly, he also claims that the distribution curves for every characteristic are different. So you can't really determine race based on skin color and skull measurements. And then finally, he says that variation within the group is bigger than between the group. And that's a really remarkable statement to make, because we see that in 1970s with Richard Lewinton, mm -hmm. who uses that particular argument to dismiss the whole concept of race as mm -hmm. something that exists in biology. Mm -hmm. But instead, for Morant, he says, if variation within the group is bigger than between the group, that means that there's no such thing as pure races, because they're also taking kind of a Darwinian perspective to things. There's a long history of mixture and contact. A modern man is simply devoid of pure races. It's just not possible. Instead of saying that race does not exist because of this, he says this shading and grading into each other and this large group of variation that a race might have are racial characteristics. He's against the notion of pure races and against the notion of races existing in individuals, but can't quite go as far to say that the whole concept of race does not exist in biology. Yeah, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around that, right? Like this idea <laughs> that race can't be an attribute of individuals, but he thinks it can still be an attribute of populations. I feel like your average person would hear that and say, what is he talking about? <laughs> therefore, there is race. Yeah, therefore, there is race. Okay, here's like, here's someone we can use to support the idea that there's race. Like, I wonder if is there like a modern day analog to that? I mean, I guess there is, right? There are lots of people out there. Maybe you could even suggest the majority of people who think of themselves as anti-racist who still on some level believe that race is a real thing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of Charles Murray, honestly. It <laughs> okay. makes me think of, you know, Murray and, and Herrenstein's The Bell Curve where they keep saying over and over again, we're not arguing for racism, but we are arguing that there are races but then there's this middle point that I'm hoping, Iris, you can explain a little bit about Morant's work. Mm -hmm. Charles Murray and Herrenstein and these other race realists will say there are also traits that mm -hmm. belong to these races that are unique to these races, right. whereas there might be some overlap between them. The bell curves might overlap at their tails, but mm -hmm. still they want to say that you can assign certain intelligences to certain races or certain other attributes like athleticism or criminality or whatever to certain kinds of races. Is Morant also saying that? My work centers on highlighting two of his books, right? So in 1939, he publishes a book, The Races of Central Europe, which is against Nazi scientific racism. In 1951, he's contacted by UNESCO to write a pamphlet for their Race Question in Modern Science series. So they contact Morant to write one of them. And the pamphlet he writes is titled The Significance of Racial Differences. And the topic of this pamphlet is the possibility of the existence of mental racial differences. And there is not a lot of data at the time on this subject, so he proceeds in a more hypothetical manner. 
And one of the main assumptions he makes is that mental and physical characteristics are the same. They're both subject to the same hereditary factors. And so if mental and physical characters are of the same kind, you can study them using the same biometric methods that Pearson and himself developed. Turning to mental differences, he says, I would assume that they proceed with similar bell curve distributions, that mm. they would overlap between races, and that there is bigger variation within than between populations. But he says there is variation nonetheless. Thus, we can infer that there are racial differences in mentality although a clear demonstration of them is not yet available. There's this expectation based on his experience with measuring skulls and physical characters that something similar must be happening with mental characteristics. Although he recognizes that it's really difficult because you have to stabilize the confused world of behavior and social environments, which is incredibly difficult, but he remains hopeful that comparisons can be made and that all men have basic mental qualities that are of the same kinds that hmm. can be compared. I don't know what to do with that. It's <laughs> not, construct not race constructivism. That's all that I could say. Well, I think he's kind of puzzled himself because he says in the conclusion, he recognizes that these are troublesome conclusions, right? So on the one hand, he says, people will strongly believe in the existence of racial differences. And on the other hand, there are folks who are going to strongly deny the existence. And he recognizes that for him to say that they're probable racial differences, he could be easily suspected to have sinister implications or that this might be misused for claiming the superiority of one group. And while he is not at all saying that in this pamphlet, he's also just really holding on rather stubbornly <laughs> to his scientific cultural worldview and, and, and can't quite see past the bell curse that he's been looking at for the majority of his life. He's not saying it, but he's not not saying it either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. Every time I hear this particular line taken, it reminds me of those, what, I feel like we've talked about them before on this podcast, people from the 18th century, people like Charles White, or even Blumenbach, who will mm -hmm. say there are differences, but I promise these should not be used to support slavery or whatever. But they keep up with the differences anyway. Yeah, and, and what really remains puzzling to me is that this is published by UNESCO, a hmm. huge player in this post-war fight against scientific racism. And they publish a pamphlet that promotes the, the study of biological races in body and mind, which really urges us to reconsider the supposed disappearance of race in science. Instead, we, we observe this lingering preoccupation with the biologically deterministic study of races after World War II. And I think what, what is part of this persistence of race is that these scientists may be uncomfortable with something like anti-Semitism and the idea of European races, but they're not quite ready to move beyond the global taxonomy of races that have been so deeply entrenched into the Western mind for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. So this remains possibly tied up with a colonial mindset that just can't be shed at this time. When I read your paper, Iris, that was probably the thing that stuck out to me most was the weird contradictoriness of what Morant is saying here, but also how how commonplace that is these days. Like with the, as I was saying a little bit ago, you know, your average person, say in the United States today, who may or may not 
support racism, but say they don't support racism, they are still likely to harbor some notion that race is a real thing. So, you know, maybe that isn't such a, such a contradictory position, but, you know, from where I sit, and I think from where most of us sit, in attempting to promote anti-racism and teach about why racism shouldn't exist, what we've resorted to is really pounding home this idea that there is no biological basis to race as kind of a foundational place to start from to get our students or even podcast listeners maybe to think about how socially constructed race is. And I just, I'm still struggling with this, like what, what this idea of Morantz and other, other people have certainly espoused this idea too, right? This idea that race can exist, but racism shouldn't, Hmm. what damage that still does. And, you know, at the same time, it's incredibly hard to get students up to speed with all of the knowledge that they might need, say, on human genetics or human evolution to understand what we mean when we say there isn't a biological basis to race. And it would be really convenient if we could just skip over that part and still be effective in teaching. What do we make of the way that Morant approached this and the fact that this contradictory stance on race continues to persist? And I would argue, you know, do a lot of damage and do a lot of harm. I think this takes us to the debate of whether race is a social construct or a biological reality. Right. And as many historians have commented on and social scientists, this is an incredibly complex debate. So my analysis as a historian is that I hold the idea that races don't exist, but the idea of race has been operating in and shaping society as we are familiar with and has been discussed in previous uh, episodes Uh, The idea of race has justified colonialism, eugenics, slavery, Mm. and there's a persistence of these legacies that continue to shape people's lives and bodies. Mm -hmm. So the social construction of race through science and society has become what I think an embodied reality. And we Mm -hmm. see this very much with the COVID pandemic. It's clear that marginalized groups are disproportionately affected Mm -hmm. and the numbers are rather staggering. There are much higher death rates amongst Black and Latinx communities, for instance, that result from deep-seated inequities in healthcare for communities of colors, which are amplified by wealth gaps, discrimination, and disproportionate representation in essential work. Mm -hmm. So these socially constructed realities have impacts on lived experience. At the same time, race also continues to shape scientific research. Even though genetics has shown that races don't exist, social scientists have pointed towards what, what's called the molecularization of race in pharmacogenetics. Anthropologist Amada Macherik, whose work I am very much influenced by, has recently talked about the return of the phenotype in forensic anthropology, which runs the risk of opening the door to old racial tropes Jeez. and biases. Yeah. So how can I say that race doesn't exist when it continues to shape science and society in so many ways? So instead, my contribution as a historian is to, to shape or shift the focus to how race is produced in scientific practice, irrespective maybe of intentions and what, I reveal what other histories of science reveal is that these problems are hidden very deep below the surface in the way we collect and organize our data. So Mm. instead, I would say what would be helpful is to teach a critical focus regarding data practices through Mm. reading history of science and through other sources that are coming out on data practices that interact, for instance, with skulls and race. So what we see today and what we've seen in the past is that there's this continued reuse of old cranial collections and data. 
Mm-hmm. And so race is not the only thing that lingers. So does the data. And yeah. it has all these afterlives with unintended consequences and unforeseen elements that need to be critically analyzed. So in my idea, old data is haunted by the past. It can't mm. be separated from the context of production and its initial use. So we run a risk with reusing these historic anthropological data collections of perpetuating harmful racial tropes. But more importantly, the central question is always, who is this research serving past Mm -hmm. and present, right? Mm -hmm. In what context was this research developed? And do we find that ethical today so that we can say, oh, there's no problem in taking this data and applying it to present day research where also the question should be, is the research serving the bodies that are being measured that we are looking at, Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you. It just seems like people are so interested in not paying attention to the biology part. And unfortunately, scientific literacy in our general population is low enough that a lot of people do get away without paying attention to the biology part. In a way, I guess I sort of saw echoes of that in Morant's approach, even though, of Mm. course, Paying attention because he was anti genetic, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was trying to get at. I think, I think what's interesting and what Iris just laid out there is that we're working with an epistemological problem that exists deep into the past, such that there was a a way of measuring that was seen to be legitimate, and that way of measuring continued to be seen as legitimate for such a long time that now, by default, when we see these cultural racial differences. We're just mm-hmm. going to assume that they're also biological, natural differences, because that's just the way that things have been set up. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised that if we're only 20 years in to seeing things differently, that the vast majority of people would still see them the way that they used to been, have been seen all this time. There's another thing that you mentioned a minute ago, Iris, with Maria. It's that it seems like our rise and fall of scientific racism narrative really becomes focused on how are Jews in this Mm -hmm. system related to the rest of the quote-unquote races. And it seems like the rise of scientific racism is a multiracial rise, but the fall is really just Mm -hmm. in the expansion of whiteness to include Jewishness. So that now we can say that somebody who used to have been classified as ethnically Jewish, can now be included with white folks who are not Jewish, that that's the only fall. But when it comes to other races, especially the ones that have been at the very bottom of the racial hierarchy, like people of dark colored skin, there isn't a fall at all. And in fact, that people like Morant leave a, a kind of trap door out of the fall of scientific racism, where we can still say that there are racial hierarchies And in fact, that those racial hierarchies have consequences when it comes to mental differences, intellectual differences between races that are still just as hardwired in the 21st century in the way that scientists talk about them as scientists talked about them, you know, in the pre-World War II period or the 19th century. And that that there has been no fall of that version of scientific racism yet. Yeah. Is that a fair reading of all this stuff? I think what I can comment on is that Morant has this active correspondence with Montague that spans several decades. And he writes as late as 1961, and I quote, I still cannot believe that all races are equal in their distribution Uh, of innate mental characters. And that's 
that's just really a remarkable statement to make. And taken at face value, that just sounds horribly racist. And and in a way, I think he's trying to get at something really specific about the biometric reading of these bell curves, but that gets mm-hmm. lost in the message, of course. Yeah. Regarding the fall and the expansion of whiteness, I think that that is a, a really interesting observation. And in the American context, I mean, as we saw in the fallout of the bell curve in the 1990s mm. and even Nicholas Wade's work within the last decade, it seems like there are implications to believing that there are hard intellectual racial differences in how you allocate money to schools, um, how you allocate teachers, what you pay teachers, what what kind of schooling is important, where you locate those schools, and even do you open your schools in the middle of a pandemic or not? Yeah. If you can somehow not be a, a constructivist when it comes to race, mm-hmm. if you can still somehow hold on to a biological concept of race, and you can assume that intellectual gifts or whatever are tied to that very real biological concept of race, then maybe as a government or as an educational system, you feel less compelled to pour resources into schools that are primarily occupied by students of color. Because you somehow believe, even if you wouldn't never say it explicitly, you somehow believe that well, education can only go so far for these kids. So we'll do what we can, but we're not going to do any more than that. Mm. That, that kind of generational defeatism, I think mm-hmm. a, a Morantian position undercutting the constructivism can have really bad long-term consequences. Yeah. These concepts of race and anti-racism, which we might today think that one implies the other, really does not stand or hold if you look at these mid-century mm. anthropologists who are stubbornly trying to show what the true so-called true scientific way of of going about these things are. Well, on that happy note, Iris Clever, (laughs) thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. It was a true pleasure. Really fantastic talking to you. Thank you. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. I'm Jim, the biological anthropologist. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Instagram and Twitter at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Basically everywhere else. Thanks so much for listening. 